It's the, the view of the end that often keeps you going in the present. If you're confident about what's coming, you can endure whatever trials or hardships come your way in the meantime. Dorothy could endure the trials of Oz because she had her eyes set on the Emerald City and ultimately home. Frodo could endure all the dangers of of his journey to Mordor because of the great hope he had of the destruction of the the One Ring and so to save Middle-earth. I guess as all of you have endured something in your life because you knew something better was coming. This this theme, this story, this idea transcends our cultures and our, our nations. It's at the heart of the true story of the world. This idea that the destination is actually what compels us in the journey is actually at the very heart of the true story of the world in the Scriptures. And it's at the heart of the chapter of the Scriptures we're going to look at together this morning. This morning we're going to go back to the book of Revelation and we're going to be in chapter 14. Revelation, the last book of your Bible, chapter 14. A number of you are new here, but we've actually been in Revelation for much of this year. The book of Revelation is a book that gives us a a picture, a, a vision of what reality is between this period that we're in, between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the return of Jesus Christ. It, it shows us the picture from different angles, like seeing the, the replay of a goal in a football match. And this morning in chapter 14, this is the end of a, a section of Revelation, Revelation 12 through 14. We're going we're gonna to work through these three visions that John has. The first vision is the lamb secure with his people in Mount Zion. The second vision is three warnings by three angels and what that means for God's people. And the final vision is two harvest. Two harvest. Be clear, I, I do want you as a Christian today to be deeply encouraged in your faith because of what is coming. Built up. I hope this makes your heart sore. I hope this helps you persevere. If you're not a Christian, if you've not repented and trusted in Christ alone, I hope that this chapter will help you think seriously about judgment. I hope this will help you consider your life, what you live for, and the weight of life before God in this world. And I hope, too, that you'll feel comfortable to talk to me or anyone here about any of this. Here's the main point I want you to get from this chapter. Persevere in following the Lamb because everlasting reward and everlasting judgment are coming. Persevere in following the Lamb because everlasting reward and judgment are coming. And what's coming? A certain reward, a certain judgment, and a certain harvest. That's going to be the outline for our notes today. Let's see first a certain reward, a certain reward, verses 1 to 5. This is the Word of God. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, 
and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. When we left chapter 13, just a few verses up, we met two beasts. We saw that through the state, the government, and man-made religion, the beast in this age oppose God's people. And that chapter ends with one of the most well-known and also one of the most misunderstood verses in all of Scripture. The mark of the beast. Without the mark, no one can buy or sell And the mysterious number of the mark is 666. It's a number which represents everything that is anti-Christ and anti-God. Now notice when we come to this chapter, the very next verse, we are wonderfully taken here into John's vision of heaven, Mount Zion, where the Lamb is with His people, the 144,000 who have the name of the Lamb and the Father on their foreheads. So if at the very end of chapter 13 we are warned about the mark of the beast here at the beginning of chapter 14, we're encouraged by the mark of the Lamb. Every human being on the planet has one of these marks. The mark is not a literal mark. The mark being sealed is a way of expressing ownership. So in the ancient world, slaves and and cattle were marked to express ownership. And John is using what was a well-known reality to express spiritual reality. You are marked by whom you serve, who your master is spiritually. And the 144,000 are marked or sealed by the Lamb. John first introduced us to this 144,000 back in Revelation 7. It was there that we heard the number expressed in a census in its Old Testament reality, but then when John turned and saw, he, he saw the same reality, an innumerable multitude in all of its New Testament fulfillment. The 144,000 are not a select special group. They are all of God's people in Christ from every tribe, people, language, and they're safe, secure, on Mount Zion with the Lamb. So this is a vision of God's people in God's place under God's rule especially encouraging after the assaults of the beast in Revelation 13. 
So John sees and notice then verse 2, John hears common rhythm in Revelation. A voice from heaven. It's like the voice of many waters, the sound of loud thunder. It's powerful. It's overwhelming. And it's beautiful. It's like the sound of harpists playing their harps. And just like we saw in Revelation 5, here in verse 3, they're they're singing a new song with the the great angelic host, the, the living creatures and the elders. And just as we saw just a second ago in the Scripture reading, When God's people sing a new song in the Scriptures, it's a song of joyful worship to God for His mighty deliverance of them as He's given them victory over their enemies. The song is meant to cause our hearts to long for this reality. But then notice, not everyone knows this song. Verse 3 The only ones who could learn that song are the 144,000 who've been redeemed from the earth. And then John spends some significant time to help us understand who the 144,000 actually are. Now remember, the the 144,000, it's a a number. It's 12 times 12 times 1,000. It's a number of completion, of perfection. And it represents every true Christian who has repented and believed in Jesus Christ, who, as John writes, have been redeemed from the earth. Verse 4, they've not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. John's not being literal there. Sexual relations are not inherently evil. In the context of marriage, they do not defile Paul specifically condemns teaching that would actually say they do defile in 1 Timothy 4. This is about the spiritual purity of God's people. We know from 1 Corinthians, God's people are betrothed to Christ. And in saying they're virgins, John is saying they've not committed spiritual adultery. They've not worshipped idols. Instead, next sentence, they've followed the Lamb wherever He goes, even into suffering. So they're with the the, the Lamb on Mount Zion because they've obeyed the Lamb. And they've been redeemed from mankind as the first fruits for God and the Lamb. What's John doing? He's using the same kind of picture Jesus used to help us understand spiritual reality. In this world, God is preparing a great harvest and the earth is ripening for salvation and for judgment. And God's choice people in Christ are the ones God has separated out for Himself, redeemed as the first fruits for Himself from all mankind. In their mouth, verse 5, no lie is found, for they are blameless. Now, obviously, Christians should not lie. But John is using an Old Testament way of speaking here about idolatry. In the Old Testament, idolaters are called liars. They are idolaters who also accept the lie of Satan. In the mouth of the 144,000, there's no lies. They've received the truth. They've borne witness to the truth. Now notice they aren't sinless. 
but they are blameless. That's a picture of the Christian life. What's this vision showing us? The lamb with his people in his place. It shows us the destination. It's it's showing us where everything is is headed. It's meant to lift your eyes beyond what you see to what you don't. It's meant to communicate to you how secure the redeemed are spiritually. The Lamb's name, the Father's name, written on their foreheads. Much of mankind is spiritually marked by the beast. God's people in Christ are marked, owned by the Lamb. And so nothing, not the dragon in chapter 12, not the beast of Chapter 13, not the false prophet, not even Babylon, which we're going to see more of, can keep God's people from making it to God's place. Brothers and sisters, those that God seals, He keeps. The Lamb will not lose one of His blood-bought people. So whatever trial you know right now as a Christian, this vision is screaming at you. That ultimately, even your trials somehow, some way, are working toward you being in this final destination. And once there, you're going to sing with the song of the redeemed in worship. My guess is that not many of us like layovers in airports and long flights. My guess is that many of you do not like working out to get in shape. All of that involves difficulty. Sometimes it involves small seats on airplanes or more sets than you want to do. It involves inconvenience and hardship. But we go through all of that, all of it, because of where it's going, where we're headed. And John here is is raising the gaze of the church to where we will be and who we will be with to show us whose we truly are that we might have this final vision to persevere now in the present. Because the the way that we are marked by the Lamb, we are secure. And now we have this journey of faith with this ultimate destination in view. How does this help you in your struggle right now, perhaps with a sin or trials? Doesn't Doesn't it lift your eyes above what is right in front of you to what's coming. I wonder if you're tired in your own Christian life of, of just your own struggle with sin or maybe just what it is to live the faithful Christian life in this world. This is meant to remind you whose mark you bear, the destination that is coming. Do you, do you need joy that lasts? Joy that that replaces the the cheap pleasures that you contend against in your life. Remember whose name you bear and the destination that awaits you. It will be worth it. The Lord gives us this grand, great vision that we might be faithful in very ordinary circumstances. I personally lament that the 144,000 has caused such confusion. Because the description of the 144,000 is just a description of every true Christian. They turn from the life of idols. They bear witness to the truth. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Why? They love the Lamb. They honor the Lamb. 
And so they're a redeemed and a blessed people. And the question is, is that you? Not perfectly, but faithfully, repentantly, following the Lamb. As I was thinking about you preparing this sermon, I just see so much evidence of that in so many of you. Friends, we're in a fight in the Christian life. Our hearts are constantly tempting us to to abandon the Lamb to run after the beast, to to settle down here in in Babylon, to settle for so many lesser things in this world, whether it's pleasure, it's money, it's comfort, even a website, just because it seems easier. And here we're meant to see how valuable we are to God. He sealed us. He marked us with the Lamb. How great His plans are for us in Christ Jesus. We need this vision of the end to keep walking in the present individually and together as a church. Notice that the 144,000 aren't marked out because they're doing something extraordinary. They're marked by ordinary faithfulness. And that's what we want to be about together, helping each other toward. This destination is coming. This destination is certain. As we, as we live in this world, as we feel the struggles in our own life in this world, as we battle our own sin, as we battle the demonic powers of hell, doesn't this vision thrill your heart? Doesn't it cause you to rejoice? It's meant to strengthen you in the ordinary faithfulnesses that you and I are called to each day. So John begins by holding out to us a certain reward. And next, he then shows us a certain judgment. That's what we'll look at next, a certain judgment, beginning in verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image, and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name." Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So now we have three angels, and we've moved from heaven, the unseen realm, to the seen realm, the sky above the earth. Each angel comes with a message. The first angel, verse 6, has an eternal gospel to proclaim to all who dwell on the earth. 
And what's the message? Verse 7, fear God and give Him glory. The hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made heaven and earth. The message is don't have a false view of judgment. The message to fear and worship God is grounded in God's coming judgment and in His creation, His power to create. And the message is clear. Judgment is not a possibility. It's a certainty. This message goes out to this world that is so consumed with itself, so indifferent, so skeptical. And God makes clear, judgment is coming. How gracious it is of God to warn the world in this way. God is owed glory because God created everything. And because He's created everything, notice the logic, He will judge everything. So this reality of God's coming judgment is not an inconvenient truth that you can just conveniently ignore. The message shows you how weighty life is in this world, that your life will be assessed by the very God who's given us life. John says that the angel's message is an eternal gospel. It's eternal because it stands forever. And gospel because it's good news. It's good news for the church that God will not overlook evil. He will judge it. Just as as any man who's truly good will not fail to act if someone were doing something wicked to his wife or his family, so God, who is infinitely good, will not fail to judge this world that he's created, that he's worked in. So the angel's warning makes clear God will not be ignored forever. God will not overlook sin. And what this world overlooks, what this world celebrates, will not be treated in the same way by God. God's judgment is good news because it means God is truly, really, unimaginably, unimaginably good. The God who's going to judge is so good, He sent His Son into this world to take judgment on Himself for the very people who have rebelled against God. The Son has come into the world to live, to die, to bear the penalty of sin in His person for all of those who would ever repent of their sin and trust in Him. So to be prepared for the coming judgment, you must turn and look, trust in Jesus Christ, the One who's come to take judgment on Himself in the cross. Christ has lived. Christ has died. Christ has been raised. We're sinners. And now Christ reigns in heaven. And He commands the world, everyone who worships idols instead of the true God, to repent and to believe in the Son, Jesus Christ. Friend, Christ has come into the world to save. Come to Christ Jesus as your Savior before you come to Christ Jesus as your judge. Bow your knee to Him now in humble repentance and faith before you bow your knee to Him in conquered submission. Judgment is coming. 
But the penalty of judgment has been paid in Christ. This is the gospel, the good news of of Jesus Christ. And it's at the heart of what God is doing in the world. I pray you'll wrestle with this, with where you stand with God and with Jesus Christ and talk to me or someone you know here who's a Christian about this if you have questions. This coming judgment is meant to make you, all of us, ask what it is you worship. Who by your life are you giving glory to? Who do you worship? What does your life demonstrate that you think is of great worth? Money? Your reputation? Are you living your life for some earthly security? I'll just say for me personally, over the last few weeks, I have counted it an undeserved privilege to know the plight personally of brothers and sisters in Afghanistan who have been tried and tested and whose worship has remained true. Who fear the judgment of God more than they fear the cruelty of a wicked regime. They love the Lamb and they've counted their lives as nothing in comparison to being owned and and known by the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, giving up your life to make much of God's glory, to make His name great, will not be a life lived in vain. The Lord will use it. This world's indifference to our God, its opposition, is not going to go on forever. A day is set, a day is coming. Don't have a false view of judgment. And secondly, verse 8, the next angel, don't have a false sense of security. A false sense of security. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine, the passion of her sexual immorality. This Babylon begins at the Tower of Babel. It extends to the empire. Babylon, it stands for the world united against God and His purposes. Jeremiah and Isaiah, the prophets, predicted the fall of the empire Babylon. In their day, that seemed impossible to God's people, but it fell. And as the story of Scripture develops, Babylon stands for the the world empires and ultimately the whole world system organized in rebellion against God. It was Rome in John's day. And ultimately, it's the entire world. And notice how the angel describes Babylon. It's in terms of how she seduces. Persecution is not the only way Satan seeks to destroy the church. He is happy to destroy the church and deceive the world through seduction. Babylon seduces the world with her wine, making her drunk on his pleasures. So the wine tastes, but the pleasures don't last. The the, the wine, the pleasures of this world are not worth your life. Babylon, Babylon is fallen. So practically, do not love this world. It seduces. It makes promises it cannot keep. It, It writes checks that it cannot cash. And the great temptation is to take your eyes off of Mount Zion and to keep them just here on this plane in the world. Do not throw all of your eggs into the basket of this world. Don't have a false sense of security. And the third angel, 
Verses 9 to 11 warns you, don't worship what is false. Don't worship what is false. Notice that the beast mark has nothing to do with a vaccine or a literal mark. It has everything to do with who or what you worship. If you worship the beast, you receive the mark of the beast on your forehead. It's a spiritual reality. And those who worship the beast will suffer the wrath of the Lamb. Verse 10, the wine of God's wrath. So notice Babylon seduces you with its wine, but that wine ultimately leads you to the wine of God's wrath, the cup of His anger. And the description of the judgment of God here is so clear. Tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of holy angels and the Lamb. Verse 11, the judgment is forever. The smoke goes up forever and ever. There's no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image, who receive the mark of its name. I don't want to skip over. I don't want to make light of this warning. It is either true or it's not true. Sin really is wicked or it's not wicked. God really is this holy and worthy or He's not. And the reason we question this, the reason we get awkward and uncomfortable when we read about this in Scripture is because we underestimate the sinfulness of our own sin. We we underestimate what it is to commit high treason against God. We start to think He's lackadaisical like we are, that He's indifferent like we are, that He's spiritually lazy, or worse, spiritually dead. And the warning is meant to shake you. It's meant to wake you up to the holiness and the the goodness, the eternality of God and His judgment that will be eternal and conscience. If it were not true, the warning would not be gracious. So friends, just as in this chapter, the Scriptures are not hiding from you the realities of heaven, they're also not hiding from you the realities of hell. And we cannot hide that either. What does not embarrass God cannot embarrass us. It's these weighty realities when they're revealed to us that make more precious to us Christ. The cross, the sacrifice, the Lamb. And really the question that we should all be wrestling with as we we hear this, hear this warning about hell, and I want to be clear, I'm happy to talk to any of you about hell. But the question you should be wrestling with is, who or what you worship. If you drink the wine of Babylon, you will drink the wine of God's wrath. And what does God judge? What's He always judged? Those who have worshipped what is false. So what do you worship? A beast? Unknowingly? How do you discern your worship? How do you discern? Well, you start to look at how you spend your time, what animates your heart, where you spend your money, where you spend your energy, what you give your gifts to. Just look at what you're giving your life to get. One way, brothers and sisters, that we persevere in faithful worship is by knowing and growing in our affections for the Lamb. So meditating on God's coming judgment serves you because it leads you to greater affections for Christ and His glory and greater energy for Christ who bore judgment in Himself. It's going to help you see the 
singular, singular worth of Jesus Christ over whatever it is that's tempting you in this world? How do you fight the seduction of this world? By keeping before you, by seeing, by savoring the Lamb. There's an old song. Maybe you've heard it. The lyrics are so true. This world has nothing for me. And this world has everything. All that I could want. Nothing that I need. Hear these warnings. But then notice they're all given, verse 12, for the sake of the saints. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints who keep the commandments of the God and their faith in Jesus. The warnings for you, Christian, are meant to encourage you to keep going. And what does it mean to endure? Does it mean you go do something radical and and extraordinary? It means keeping the commandments of God and your faith in Jesus. Do you see how practical revelation is? For right now, today, your life, we're getting these big warnings about these big realities and, and big events, idolatry, hell, judgment, the spiritual battle taking place in the world, and it's all being given to us so that we'll keep obeying Jesus. We'll keep trusting Jesus. So if we're going to believe this book, and we should, then you have to believe that your ordinary faithfulness tomorrow and next week and the week after that matters. And it's a great consequence in God's world. Moms, your faithfulness with your children, keeping the commandments, trusting in Jesus, matters in God's universe. Dads, our faithfulness to our families our trust in Christ, our faithfulness at work, it matters deeply. Those of you who are single, how you're spending this time in your life, it matters in God's universe. And let me say how encouraged I am by so many of you and how you're giving your life away for the glory of God. Kids and teenagers, don't think that obeying and trusting Jesus is something for later. Your faithfulness in your home with your friends, it matters right now. We so easily overestimate the great acts in the Christian life and we underestimate ordinary, steady faithfulness over time. Committing to a church, regularly gathering, serving for years and decades, faithfulness in prayer and evangelism, giving, reading your Bible, opening your home, encouraging others, this is keeping commandments of God and your faith in Jesus. And notice that with this, there's a promise of blessing. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. They rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. For the Christian, death is a blessing. Jesus Christ has made the last enemy nothing more than rest. Rest, because their deeds follow them. Deeds that follow don't save you. But they're proof that you were sealed, that you were marked by the Lamb. They're proof that you were faithful, blameless in Christ, that you did not fall ultimately into spiritual adultery. Your deeds are going to prove your confession on the last day. And on that last day, the time for deeds and struggle and labor will be over. What an incentive to keep going to persevere next week, 
to keep gathering with the church, bearing witness, praying, showing hospitality, doing good, because rest from your, uh, your labor in this wicked world is coming. And your labors are going to matter. They're going to follow you after you die into that rest. What is the passage telling you? It's saying to you, God sees. He sees what the world doesn't see. How encouraging that is to Christians who the world over are living lives unnoticed and uncelebrated and opposed that on this final day they're going to be raised and our deeds will matter before God eternally in this world to come. Live in view of that day. Your deeds will give glory to God and prove your confession of faith. God is not going to overlook whether in judgment or reward a certain judgment. And then finally, and more briefly, a certain harvest. Look at verses 14 to 20. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood, blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Here we come to this final vision. And what does John see but two harvests? One is for salvation one is for judgment. The world that has been ripening is now ready. In the final, the first harvest, verse 14, he sees a white cloud, one like a son of man. It's the, the risen Christ coming with the clouds of heaven. He's not wearing a crown of thorns. He's wearing a golden crown. He has a sharp sickle and an angel calls out from the temple from the presence of God the Father and the message is, put in the sickle, reap, the hour to reap has come. The harvest of the earth is ripe. I take this to be the harvest of salvation. The harvest that Jesus once said is plentiful. He said to pray for laborers for the harvest. That harvest is now full and complete. None is going to be missing. The full earth will be reaped. But there's another picture John sees as well. Verse 17. Another angel comes from the temple in heaven. And he had a sharp sickle. And another angel, verse 18, who comes out from the altar also has a sickle and authority over the fire. And there's another harvest of ripe grapes. So verse 19, the angel gathers the grape harvest of the earth and throws it into the winepress of the wrath of God. There's a vivid imagery of judgment. It's trodden outside the city. Blood is flowing from the winepress, 1600 stadia. That's, that just means about 321 kilometers. The, the point, the point is that judgment will be just as complete as the harvest 
of salvation. Nothing will be overlooked. Wickedness will be judged in its fullness. So this vision is making clear to us that the world we live in is not spiraling out of control. It is moving deliberately to God's purposed ends for the world. How true is the statement that in heaven there is no panic? There's only plans. The angel is revealing this to the church that we might be confident God's plans will succeed. Nothing can stop the plans of God. So when you, when you live, when you risk your life in view of this end, it is eternally wise, even though it looks temporarily foolish. This end, this certain harvest that's coming informs the present. So one of the great events left in the world today is Christ coming for His own and Christ judging those who have opposed God's eternal Son. Patiently, but surely God is preparing the harvest. And graciously, God doesn't just save His people, He invites His people to participate in the work of the harvest. So hear the warning. Hear the siren. Judgment is coming. Don't be loyal to sleep in this world. This world is not ultimate. This world has an end. So the message of this chapter, the message of the entire book of Revelation is the same. The Lamb wins. Persevere. Keep going. See the unseen. Things spiritual, eternal. Be confident of what is coming. John Owen writes, Our beholding by faith things that are not seen, things spiritual and eternal, will alleviate all our afflictions, make their burden light, and preserve our souls from fainting under them. When we behold what is coming, our afflictions become light and momentary. Christ wants His church to be certain of the future reward and the future judgment that we might persevere in following the Lamb. So lift your eyes, brothers and sisters, to what you cannot see. The very sure future when the Lamb's victory will be visible to all and we as His people will share in it. And in light of that, persevere, keep going. In all of the ordinary faithfulnesses, the Lord calls you to each and every day. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you that the Lamb has been slain and now the Lamb reigns as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The Lamb is conquered. We pray that you would help us to persevere by faith. We pray that you would keep us in the faith until that great day when our faith becomes sight. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lamb. Amen.